Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Oh, hi. It's nice to be with you again, Kevin. <laughs> that is so sincere. Thanks so much uh, for putting on that facade for us. I am the fraternity rush chairman, and it's damn glad to meet you. Well, there you go. I like it. There's a there's a uh, Animal House reference. That's good. Cool. Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, and then also joining us, David Moore. Hi, David. I think Evan's delayed response was getting back at you because you hardly ever introduce him first. <laughs> I think there was some not-so-subtle animosity that was coming through in that. But please, you interpret it however you well, I think there. I would never be passive aggressive. I'm not passive aggressive. I'll just sit here in the dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, just like always. Uh, all right, uh, so uh, kind of a big weekend. A lot of stuff happened. Uh, a lot of unpredictable things. That, but uh, one of the things we want to get right to is uh, uh, the question of Micah Parsons' uh, sudden dominance in the NFL, which. Uh, when I say sudden, I don't mean it, it happened uh, last week, although, or in the week before that, but also when he came into the league, uh, almost since he hit the ground, uh, he has been running all over quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, and it brings the question in my mind just about how great he is. Uh, and I know it's awfully soon to be making those kind of comparisons, but I'm looking back over the history of Cowboys here, and he looks to me like the best Cowboy in at least 30 years, and I know that includes DeMarcus Ware. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today is that because we have a comparable situation with the Mavericks and Luka Doncic, and uh, when he came into the league and and uh, the, the dominance he showed so early in his career, and I think that's what we see with true Hall of Fame players they really rarely need that kind of uh, – or sometimes, I mean, we've, we've seen players who, who've made themselves into great players over time. But, of course, the, the comparison with uh, with Luka and the Mavericks is with uh, Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, and, and Dirk was a, a good player initially, but it took him two or three years before he really found himself. Uh, and Luka did not need that kind of break-in period. So uh, that's why I want to run past you two guys is uh, what do you think about this comparison and uh, is it valid? And do we think that uh, this is the case? Is is Micah Parsons the Luka Doncic of the Dallas Cowboys? Well, to start this, there's a lot to unpack there. I I remember when we talked about Luka a, a couple of years ago and we were trying to right away in his first season compared him to like Dirk Nowitzki. And uh, I know Evan was hesitant, reluctant to do that. And, and rightfully so saying, well, look, this guy had like a long, what's going to be hall of fame career. Let's not try to compare him to that immediately. And I agree with that. What you do is you compare those players to where they are at comparable points in their career to get an indicator. And then a short time after that, you can say, Oh, well, this guy really is, further advanced because look where they were at the same points in their careers. And now two to three years later, look at it. And I think we've seen that with Luca. I think even Dirk would concede that, Hey, this guy uh, is farther ahead and has more skills than where I was comparably in my career. Uh, And now you can extrapolate it down the road. I, I think it's the exact same thing with Micah Parsons. And, and to me, it's interesting because, you know, last year in his first game as a rookie against Tampa Bay, uh, he really didn't do much. I remember coming out of that game going, huh, as good as he looked in the preseason and training camp, I would have thought he would have done a little bit more in that game. And what happened? Dallas lost to Marcus Lawrence. Out of necessity, they said, okay, let's put him at defensive end here against the LA Chargers. He wrecked that game against the Chargers last year and served notice that he was a special player. And he just hasn't looked back from that point on. And uh, the ability to use him strictly as a pass rusher or allow him to drop back into coverage at linebacker um, it, as Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys are talking about, every single opponent that Dallas faces on the schedule, the first thing those offensive coordinators do is put Micah Parsons up and say, we have to identify where he is and what position he's playing. And, and to me now, less than 20 games into his NFL season, they play the Giants this week. People are asking, is this as much of an impact player as Lawrence Taylor was? And you go back, Lawrence Taylor was the last defensive player to be an MVP in the NFL. So 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I do think great players burst on the scene sooner than you expect, which is why they are great. That is what sets them apart. And based on what we've seen in these first 19 games, uh, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to project uh, greatness for Micah Parsons. You know, uh, I, I wrote a column, and I know that, that Evan hates this when I say this, but I, I, I talked to Jerry West uh, a couple of years ago. About, uh, about Micah Luka. Parsons? Not about Micah Parsons, about Luka Doncic. It was prescient. He was ahead of his yeah, time. No, and and, uh, and Jerry said, and look, this was a guy that is, is as old school as it gets, right? Uh, but he said right from the bat, uh, hey, uh, this guy is better than than, than Dirk. Uh, this this guy is going to be the greatest player in Mavericks history. Uh, and uh, I, I think that there are times that you can see these things with, with players. Now, obviously, there's – there are things that can happen, injury and all, all kinds of things can factor into this. And longevity is going to actually, you know, cast that argument. Sure. Absolutely. You know. I mean, Dirk played 21 years for the Mavericks. So, so that's, that's, it's hard. It's hard to top that kind of thing when you think about it. Uh, sure. But uh, just based on what his impact is already, as David said, I think that, that Luke made his case uh, and has made it very well. I and mean, he continues to make it. Uh, I, I think when, when we're talking about Micah Parsons being compared uh, to Lawrence Taylor, I, I think that 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 immediately takes him past DeMarcus Ware. And I think it might even take him past some of the guys in the early 90s Cowboys, frankly. I mean, those, those are some obviously great players. And the triplets are all Hall of Famers. And there were a lot of great players on those teams. Deion Sanders is on those teams. Deion Sanders is probably one of the top three or four cornerbacks in NFL history. But from a – Standpoint of well, that's the question: Is Micah Parsons the best defensive player that this franchise has had since Deion Sanders? Yeah, it might be. That's a legitimate question. As it well. might be. I, I I think the 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 issue for me is that because nothing is more important than up uh, interrupting and upsetting a team's rhythm, an offensive rhythm at quarterback. That that is the largest. You know, the the Rams won a Super Bowl last year because Aaron Donald got to uh, um, the Joe quarterback uh, Joe Burrow. Burrow. and Von Miller, uh, Von Miller. <laughs> exactly. But on the very last play of the game, the, if he does not, if Aaron Donald does not get to uh, Joe Burrow on that play, uh, th- there's a guy running wide open down the field and it's going to be a touchdown. Uh, th- there's no question about that, but because he got to the quarterback so quickly plays over Rams, win the Super Bowl. that's it. Uh, and so, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, you, you got to have a quarterback. There's no question about that. But if you've got a pass rusher, a premier pass rusher, a guy that's that has that ability to affect not just a play every once in a while. I mean, we, we see all kinds of pass. That's what Demarcus Lawrence has been, right? He's been a very good player against the run. Yes. Uh, he'll occasionally get to the quarterback. quarterback. He'll occasionally pressure the quarterback. But it's not a, an almost every down occurrence, you know, with Micah Parsons, when he is set up on the line of scrimmage and is rushing the passer, it is almost an every down occurrence that he's getting pressure in the back of something is happening. Yeah, the, the only thing I wrestle with here is like, it's as three old guys, what do we often lament about social media? Well, everything's an immediate reaction. Everything's either the greatest or the worst you've ever seen. And people are, uh, players are anointed as the greatest uh, immediately with very little, uh, resume to back it up. So there's a, there's an initial reaction in me against that to say, okay, let's tap the brakes here. Let's slow it down. Uh, so you can make the argument, look, 19 games in, you're just as ridiculous as, as all the people you're criticizing who given like an immediate reaction. But at some point you have to trust what is unfolding in front of you in real time based on what you've witnessed before in other careers. And to me, that's kind of where I am with Micah Parsons. Uh, look, injuries is going to determine whether or not he's one of the greatest uh, temperament. There, there, there's so many factors that can interrupt a career um, that will, will change the trajectory of this discussion. But I do believe it's valid at this point, as he's about to play his 20th NFL game Monday night in New York, to say he is on a trajectory that is taking him uh, into, you know, the the elite uh, defensive players uh, in this league. 
All right, we're going to get out of this segment. We're going to move into the rest of our Cowboys uh, uh, segment for the for this podcast. But I do want to run this past Evan. So, Evan, you have a problem with saying that this guy might be one of the greatest Cowboys ever. I have a problem with comparisons to Lawrence Taylor and comparisons to guys who are the greatest ever. Um, Lawrence Taylor redefined pass rushing from the linebacker position. And, and so – I just think it's unfair to Micah Parsons at this point. What I can tell you is this was the best defensive rookie in the NFL last year. Um, for a guy who just watched Sunday's game kind of out of the corner of his eye because I was in the middle of a meaningless baseball game and, and traveling, every time I looked up, it appeared that Micah Parsons had made a play. That stood out, even from a casual standpoint. And, you know, Add into the fact that the Cowboys needed somebody to step up into the void after Dak Prescott went out, right? I think, David, you wrote about the need for the defense to step up. Well, he led the charge that way. And so for me, where I'm at right now is this is a special talent who is fulfilling that special talent right now. And I think the sky is the limit for him. I just don't want to put him in the same boat yet with the greatest ever to play the position. I think the future is open for that, but certainly I think longevity is, is the one thing that always makes me kind of t- say, let's, let's see a guy do this for a decade. No, there's no question about that. And, and I think that's the thing we all realize is that you have to be able to do it year after year after year. There's no question about that. But if just purely on talent, we're not talking about what you've accomplished, just purely on talent, is this guy – a rival to that. And I, I don't think there's any question about it. I think that on pure talent alone, he looks like this. And from it, from everything we've, we've learned about him and everything we see about him and his, his desire to be that kind of player and his commitment to be that kind of player. Uh, I think it all points. It's certainly in that direction. Yeah. I, all right. He's a home run at this point. That's, that's all I can well, say. There's no question about it. I, I feel bad now about questioning the pick, uh, you know, when they made it. It's like, oh, another linebacker? My gosh. Well, it was. turns out it wasn't another linebacker. Uh, it wasn't just a linebacker. It, it was a hybrid. Yeah, it was a hybrid. It was a completely different animal. Although I will I will say that if anybody had thought he was anything close to this, he would have been the first pick of that draft as well. I mean, he would not have. Remember, passed. they moved back and still I mean, got him, that's too. That's exactly after right. They lost out on the two well, corners. He was the 12th yeah. pick, right? Wasn't that where he came in? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, they just said a thank you note to the Broncos, by, by the way, for uh, making that pick, <laughs> that cornerback. Uh, so they ended up with Micah Parsons instead. Unbelievable. All right. Uh, so let's go into the rest of the Cowboys now, David. Uh, let's clear up a, a little matter here because – the great thing about the Cowboys is there's about, oh, I don't know, 16 spokesmen for the team, and uh, all of them have their own opinions about what's going to happen and in uh, the injury situations and statuses with, with players. And so we've heard multiple reports about when Dak may be back. We've heard multiple reports about when Michael Gallup will be back. So, David, I'm going to make you the expert for the day, and you are the Cowboys spokesman. When can we expect to see Dak Prescott and Michael Gallup back? Well, based on the optimism that Jerry and Stephen Jones have expressed publicly in the last 48 hours about when Dak could return, frankly, I'm a little surprised he didn't play in the third quarter of the game against Cincinnati when uh, (laughs) Cooper Rush was struggling. Uh, This is, and, you know, now, like, Jerry and Stephen are both saying you can't rule out Uh, Dak Prescott's return for that game against Washington October 2nd. Well, I will point out that that will be 20 days since he underwent surgery. And at this moment, he still has stitches (laughs) in his thumb, as Mike McCarthy likes to point out. Um, That is overly optimistic and, in my mind, highly unrealistic on when he will be able to return. If you want to start talking that next week, October 9th, against the L.A. Rams, I think that's a little more reasonable conversation to have about when he could return. To to me, Washington seems wildly unlikely uh, that he would be able to return at that point. Uh, Although, although, uh, Kevin, you will be interested to know, I, I read a study the other day that 
that bones actually do heal quicker when they're in a Cowboys uniform <laughs> than uh, any other sports uniform. So yeah. I, I guess that I guess the club has that to look forward to. Yeah. Well, that was always the thing I was told. It's like it's six weeks for a bone to heal. That that's what I've always been told. But I don't know. Maybe maybe they got something different here. And maybe it, you know, there it's not a weight bearing bone. So maybe maybe there are certain things that you can do and that you can get away with. I don't. Yeah, know. but it's the thumb on the throwing hand of a quarterback, where you go, you're going to have to have a certain amount of strength and the, the, the fulcrum aspect of it to do that to actually throw the ball you want to throw. Because if you don't throw with your normal philosophy. The rest of your body and your mechanics get out of whack, right? Because it's compensating for the the lack of strength that you have in the normal ball you're throwing. So coming back too quickly from this can create other uh, issues. But I, I would I would say look, still it it's a much more uh, optimistic outlook than what they feared going in because of where the break occurred. But you know. L- and they won't rush back. If if he physically can't do it, they want. And some of this is with the Jones family, you have to separate marketing from football reality. You know, they want to keep fans engaged. It's like, well, let's build on top of this unexpected win over Cincinnati by saying, you know, by giving the front end of the projection of when Dak could come back. Let's just play this out with who they have in place now and see how many games they can win before Dak gets back. Everyone agrees they're a better team, you know, with him – and and they're better with him coming back sooner rather than later. But I don't know that we need to keep pushing the, the front end of this up. Michael Gallup was always, we've talked about this before. I, I thought you circled the, uh, the New York Giants game, that Monday night game as the first viable chance of his return by not placing him on injured reserve to start the season. They were saying they felt he would either be back for that Washington game, October 2nd, or the Giants game uh, this coming Monday. Uh, he has a chance to do that. This week will be his second practice in pads. If he comes out of that, I think there's a chance you see him on a limited basis in that New York game. Okay, that'd be very interesting to see that. Well, in his place, Noah Brown, uh, all credit to him, has really stepped up and, and played very well uh, in his time. And, of course, what I would imagine what you'll see is teams will start to pay attention a little bit more to Noah Brown. Uh, as he continues to kind of make his way as an actual wide receiver and not just a personal punt protector, as uh, uh, the PPP, (laughs) as uh, uh, Mike McCarthy likes to say. So um, let's let's talk about uh, then moving into that in the offense and obviously the play of Cooper Rush. Um, He came out very hot in that game. It looked terrific. They had so much confidence in his ability to deliver. They go for it on fourth and two on the first drive. He hits, what, a 17-yard pass on that play to Noah Brown. Uh, and yeah, wasn't just a check. Wasn't, down. It wasn't no. like, let's just get the first. Let's okay. We, we have a chance to, and that's what to get Tony Romo here. calls him a gunslinger at that point. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't know about he's listen, he's no Ben DiNucci. I don't see any sidearm throws out of this guy. So it's not, not quite the, thankfully, yeah, thankfully, not quite the gunslinger that old Ben is the DiNucci is. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I want to ask you this, of course, over the course of the game, then we saw that start to flatten out a little bit. Uh, and I don't know how much of that was uh, uh, actually what anything that Cooper was doing or anything that the Bengals were doing to change things up and make it more difficult for him. He did obviously rally there in the fourth quarter and take him down to the winning points. So there's certainly no knocking Cooper rush for what he did, but going forward, what do you expect us to see, maybe, David, from him? Is he going to be more like he, what he was on those first couple of drives when they put up 17 points in the first half? Or is he going to be more like the guy in the second half who was who did all right and didn't turn the ball over, uh, but basically just drove the bus? Well, uh, Cooper Rush has two starts for Dallas. They have won those games 20-17 to 17 and 20-16. to 16. So I, I think you've seen the template for how – they can win with him as quarterback and the sort of game he needs to do. Um, you know, I, I thought Dallas, by and large, did about everything it had to do in order to give itself a chance to win that game, which was jump out to an early lead, which is what they did, then manage the game and the clock and not turn it over, which is what they did by and large, other than that Dalton Schultz fumble uh, in the third quarter, which almost cost them. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, let the defense either put – you know, I was a little surprised that Dallas won without the defense forcing a turnover, 
but they altered their game plan a little bit, six sacks, and gave up no plays of over 20 yards to a big play offense. So uh, that made up for the fact they didn't get any turnovers. And then you had uh, uh, Devontae Turpin with two key returns that led to two field goals in a three-point game, which was pivotal. So I, I thought you know, they did all of the little things that they had to do. And I, I just think the Cowboys' margin of victory, and I understand it's razor thin in the NFL every week, but I think it's even more so for Cowboys with Cooper Rush at quarterback. Uh, everything has to be right. And um, I, I think um, – I do think this is a team that needs to get early leads in games and then just let the game unfold – versus trying to play catch-up. If Dallas is the team that goes down 17-3 to uh, with Cooper Rush at quarterback and uh, the way this offense is constructed right now, uh, the lack of weapons, especially in this game where Dalton Schultz may not play on Monday night uh, against New York, I just don't think they have enough to, to really stay in those games, and I think it gets away from them. So uh, it's imperative to get to an early lead, execute, in the part of the game that you're scripted and then turn it over to the defense and let them go to work. Well, I, I really don't feel like that that's going to be an issue, them getting down early, especially against the Giants. Uh, I know the Giants have played well. They're off to a 2-0 and start, uh, but I, I I wouldn't be afraid of that offense. That, that That's not really their style either, though. They're, they're, their game is built around yeah. a running game with Saquon Barkley and then well as he's been playing so far, although he didn't wasn't quite as as dominant this last week as he was in the in the first week of the season, um, so I don't think that's really going to be an issue for them going forward. You know, one of the things that they did do well this last week only five penalties for forty five yards. That's really terrific for the Cowboys. It's not a ten penalty game, so that really helped them. I thought it really helped them that they ran the ball in the game. They certainly in the in the first half they ran the ball a lot and they uh, and they prospered because of that. So they did a lot, all the things that I felt like they should have done. One small complaint about Dalton Schultz, boy, the guy is just such an upright target. Uh, you know, he he runs uh, straight up, and even when he's going down, he's still straight up. He just he needs to fall over, have a little body lean, something to quit making yourself such an open target for that kind of stuff. Not that he fumbles a lot, but certainly in that case, he did leave himself a little uh, open to that type of thing. I want to say before we get out of our Cowboys thing, a shout out to Trayvon Diggs who was unrecognizable on a play down there at the a keep play down there in the fourth quarter. Sounds like a backhanded compliment. Well, it was, please go it ahead. Was a backhanded compliment from one of his teammates, Micah Parsons, who said he was shocked, shocked to see that it was number seven who got up from that tackle of Tyler Boyd on the third. And I believe it was third and 11 or something like that. It was like a three yard game. And it, it, it looked like Dick Buckus out there making that tackle. And after one of his tackles earlier in the game on a guy crossing the middle in which it, it looked kind of like a lane shoving Jerry and saying, get out, you know, one of those kind of tackles. Uh, uh, you know, the guy has the worst form ever. He gets compared to, to uh, Deion Sanders quite a bit. And I think that's a valid comparison. He no longer, not only does he have, I don't think he's as fast as Deion was. Let's be he's clear, very that's, fast. That's not a compliment in that regard, I don't think. Well, not. He, he, his instincts are great. He's not as fast as Deion. I don't think any DB ever was as fast as Deion. Uh, but uh, he is very fast. But it's his, his indifference at tackling uh, guys has just been awful. But when it was really necessary, he showed the ability to do that in that game. And I think that everybody should say, hey, why, not, why don't you do this all the time? No interceptions, but that's that's what a playmaker does, right? He does he makes the play regardless of what he what it is, and so um, yeah, that is not the strong suit of his game. And to see him make that play the way he did, uh, you know, again to me, it's a sign of he's a very polarizing figure, uh, as we've talked about Trayvon Diggs and. You know, even in crediting him, people are saying, ah, well, he should do that all the time. I don't know this in his game to do that. All, but again, he rose to the occasion when that team needed a play. And and special players do that. And it's sometimes it's out of their skill set that you don't necessarily see. But that is what makes them a special player. They rise to the occasion. To me, he showed that in that yeah. moment. I'm sure Tyler Boyd was shocked. Uh, so anyway, yeah. uh, just as everybody else was. All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment of the podcast. We're going to move over to the Rangers now. Uh, Evan, you wrote uh, in your story today about a uh, – that appeared in the Dallas Morning News uh, about uh, an early roster projection for next year. Uh, and in that, 
you specifically talked about the uh, the Rangers rotation, which included a couple of names that Rangers fans might not be familiar with, at least as far as playing for the Rangers. Well, I, I think that's because Ranger fans have their hearts set on Jacob deGrom or Clayton Kershaw. And listen, there's, there's work that's got to be done on the starting rotation. There's no doubt about that. And I think the Rangers will be very interested in Jacob deGrom and will always have a separate budget uh, above and beyond anything else that they put together for Clayton Kershaw if he wants to come home and pitch in Texas. That said, I just don't think it's very realistic to sit here and say, okay, that's who they're going to go out and get. Um, If you're Jacob deGrom, why are you going to come to a team that's going to lose 90 games this year? Uh, you'd have to be really thinking that there's that there's a lot going forward. Uh, if you're Kershaw, you've got some incentive to come home. So I, I think that they will put both those guys at the top of their list. I just don't know that it's realistic to, to view that as, as, as happening. So I went with a couple of more realistic guys to finish out the rotation. Um, and, and, I, and what I put at the top of my list, to finish out a rotation that we're assuming obviously John Gray will be back. And we're assuming that Martin Perez will get a contract extension. Uh, And you're looking for two starters in my book. Three would be great, but I think you're looking for two realistic starters. And for me, two guys that stand out because the one thing that this team needs to cut down, Kevin, are walks. The walk rates for the starting pitchers are abominable. And the, the reasons that, I don't feel like Dane Dunning and Glenn Otto have made significant progress this year are because they have two of the highest walk rates among starters in baseball. So I'm going to give you two names. Um, And of course, we always like to favor Texas-born guys, right? We love the Texas-born pitcher. So let's go with Houston's Jamison Tyone, and let's go with Texarkana's Michael Waka. I think that's also A&M's Michael Waka. Yeah. um, Both those guys are among the leaders in 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 walk rate this year and what that does is it doesn't allow you to beat yourself it allows you to go deeper into games if you go deeper into games it's going to benefit the organization and the role construction for the bullpen and i think even though this bullpen has had some struggles this year i think there are usable arms down there and i don't think it would be a real wise expenditure to go out and spend a lot of money on high-profile bullpen arms when the bulk of the work needs to be done in the rotation. You help the rotation, you're going to help the bullpen. Well, you know, the the mark of, of John Daniels uh, during his tenure with the Rangers was that um, I'm, I can always put together a bullpen. Uh, and, he, and, of course, you wrote a, a story during your the, the Tampa Bay series talking about the fact that, yeah, he – I would say they kind of almost looked down their noses a little bit at receiver, uh, at relievers and felt like, oh, we can always find another guy. And that's how Emmanuel Classe ends up with the Indians or now the Guardians. Uh, and that's how uh, Pete Fairbank ends up in Tampa Bay. Uh, these were guys who, who threw the ball upper end, upper 90s, close to 100 miles an hour. Um, very Would have been guys that are that for most people, like these guys would be untouchable. With the Rangers, it was always a feeling like, ah, we've got these kind of guys all over the place. Well, I think the, the one extenuating circumstance in Class A's case is I think ownership wanted the Rangers to put together a quote-unquote more formidable, sexier roster going into the first year at Globe Life Field. Well, what you ended up trading for was a very sexy name in Corey Kluber, who lasted all of one inning in a pandemic-shortened season. And now the Indians have the best reliever in, in the American League in Class A. In Fairbanks' case, this is a guy who really was kind of an out-of-nowhere guy who did, after a bunch of, of, of surgeries, develop really high velocity, uh, and, and the Rangers were trying to parlay that into an everyday player. What makes it stand out all that much more is that over the weekend, the guy he was traded for, Nick Solak, was diagnosed with a broken bone in his foot. Nick Solak has no role with the Rangers going forward, and it probably very much is... Uh, a, a sign that Nick's time with the Rangers has come to an end. And so here are teams that have taken Rangers relievers. And look, Cleveland and Tampa Bay have the best records in baseball of developing 
and understanding and maximizing pitching. And they took two guys from the Rangers, turned them into very significant pieces in their bullpen. And lo and behold, what are those two teams both doing? Contending for playoff spots. Right. Let's look back at the, at the rotation again, because we veered off that to talk about these relievers. Uh, uh, here's my thinking about that. And just what you said, they're, they're not getting Jacob DeGrom. He's not coming to the Rangers uh, unless they just unbelievably money whipping. My feeling is that this rotation needs at least two starters. You could make the argument that it needs three outside starters because I, I, I'm not thinking that anybody has done anything to sew up uh, that fifth spot at this point. Uh, so, given that, don't you think that they should lower their sights, go after some of these um, middle tier to middle to you know upper lower tier starting pitchers? and try to round up as many of those guys as they can get. If there's one thing I trust the Rangers process on right now, and I know this is going to sound so weird, if there's one thing I trust the Rangers and their process on right now, it's identifying good value in the mid-tier starting pitcher market. They have done it time and time again over the past five years. Um, Whether it was Lance Lynn, Mike Miner, Kyle Gibson, Martin Perez. I think they can go out and find those guys. I've got a longer list. Look, I just had to pare it down to two starters. But there are guys out there who are also interesting. Um, uh, Give us some other names. Give us three more names. Chris Bassett is a very interesting name. I kind of have him off my list only because he's 34. Um, I I have um, uh, Nathan Ivaldi up there. He's a little bit higher walk rate guy, but they've always loved Ivaldi. Another Texas guy and another guy who has thrown very hard and has really kind of matured in the way he approaches hitters now. Um, I happen to think that, that Zach Eflin in, in Pittsburgh would be of some interest. Um, I think he, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in Philadelphia would be of some interest. We'll see where that goes. Uh, I think Eflin may have an option in his contract as well. So that's a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a wild card. The other guy that's got an option in his contract who probably will opt out is Carlos Rodon in San Francisco. But this is a guy who's making $22.5 million this year. I think the Rangers probably have somewhere between $40 and $50 million to commit to free agents uh, in annual salary going into next year. You sign Rodon, then you're really going to have to take a step back in what you do with your second pitcher. And Carlos Rodon doesn't have a history of of eating innings either. This has really been the first year he's, he's really eaten up innings with the Giants. So um, I'm just trying to be a little bit more realistic about what you can do all five days to keep your bullpen fresh and allow them to do what they need to do. All right. Now let's talk about another example here. Cause you, you, we've talked about free agency, but listen, there is a big glut of middle infielders on this team. This team's, this organization has got about 50 middle infielders and they're, They've got no place to go with Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon in the middle playing shortstop and second base. What are the possibilities of a trade? Well, and I'm just, I'm not bold enough to try and make up a trade um, that involves two teams. I just can't think of of how two teams are really going to match up on that. But yes, there is a glut of middle infielders there. If there are always exceptions to the rules, right? I mean, if Miami comes to you and is willing to deal one of their controllable pitchers, that's certainly a team that I'm interested in. But if I'm the Rangers right now, what I'm doing this winter is I'm using money as my equity to go out and add to the to the starting rotation. If and when I am good, I will use one of those middle infielders to go out and add a piece. I just don't know that the Rangers are going to find uh, that Justin Foscue or um, maybe even Luis Angel Acuna is going to headline a trade for a controllable upper half of the rotation caliber of starter. Yeah. Yeah, those, those, there's no question at some point that's going to happen, but I think you're right. And I think, frankly, you just need to find out too. Uh, it wouldn't hurt the Rangers to find out on some of these uh, middle infield prospects. Who is it that you like the best? Right. I mean, you know, when, when they brought these guys, when Bubba Thompson got his shot in left field, I wasn't expecting much. Um, but I had never seen Bubba play before either. And when you see the speed that he brings and the fact that if he can get these bunts down, I, I'd have him bunt once a game. 
and and what and what he means to uh, to an an offense because of that in the lineup. So there's, I, I do feel like that this lineup uh, has the potential to be very good next year uh, if these guys stay healthy and they continue on the tracks that they are on this year. I think that, that there's a reason for optimism about that, and especially and listen, with the I just, of Mitch Garver as well. I had so, one one addition, one free agent addition in that lineup, which was a surprise. I added, um, uh, uh, I, I added uh, Michael Conforto as a free agent, um, thinking that Ray Davis mentioned a middle of the order bat, and I thought if you could put Conforto in that outfield, it gives you a little bit more veteran stability. They could use a little bit more veteran leadership in the clubhouse. And if uh, if they do that, then they maybe turn Bubba Thompson into um, a utility outfielder um, on a regular basis, defensive replacement, an extreme weapon as a pinch runner. Yes, he is that. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. Now we're going to move over to uh, college football. Uh, I went to the went down to College Station uh, on Saturday to watch the the Aggies play thirteenth uh, ranked Miami. Uh, a lot of interest in that game, uh, considering the fact that the, the Aggies had been upset by Appalachian State the week before, a devastating loss for A and M, considering what their Hopes were for this season, uh, and if they had lost to Miami, and then with the prospects of playing Arkansas this week, and then after that, they they were going to be on the road for actually a month. Uh, that's going to be a really uh, when that road trip in, includes uh, the Aggies. I mean, it includes uh, Alabama, and it includes uh, some some very tough games. Ole Miss is on that part of the schedule as well. Uh, this is going to be a, a uh, and actually that's when they come back uh, and they play Ole Miss. Uh, so, uh, I would say that, uh, uh, watching that game that Max Johnson, who replaced Haynes King as a starting quarterback, did a very nice job. Uh, he is a uh, poison. The pocket was good. Uh, he, the ball looks good coming out of his hand. He, he, he is a more polished passer and quarterback. Certainly I think than Haynes King is Haynes King is considered a much faster player, but you know, in, in Jimbo's offense, you never get the idea uh, that a quarterback is, is can do what he wants to do or can create something if something were to pop up. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Brian Eagle last week uh, contacted Nick Starkle, who sat one year behind Kellen Mond under Jimbo Fisher, to talk about, so what is it like uh, trying to grasp this offense? And basically what they what uh, uh, Nick Starkle said was that, yeah, it's really hard. It's harder than when I, you know, in my brief dalliance in NFL training camp, what they want you to do. Uh, so, uh, which always leads to the question here, it's been a while since Jimbo Fisher has produced a really top-flight quarterback. Uh, he had four in the course of his career, first as an offensive coordinator at LSU, and then in his early years there at uh, Florida State with Bobby Bowden, he had uh, four first-round quarterbacks uh, included, and that's that's pretty impressive to do that. But since then, it hasn't been quite the same. Uh, I'm not saying you got to be producing NFL quarterbacks, and I don't even care about the fact that uh, other than Jameis Winston, none of those quarterbacks ever really panned out in the NFL, and you could say that Jameis Winston hasn't been great either. Um, that doesn't matter. Johnny Manziel was not a great NFL quarterback either. He was just one of the best uh, and most entertaining college quarterbacks ever and certainly the greatest player in A&M history. So uh, I, I, I would say that the situation is not solved there at A&M. Max Johnson is an upgrade over Haynes King, still not quite producing at the level that you want, 10 of 20 for 140 yards, not an imposing day. And it's going to be really hard, as Max said after the game, uh, that's not going to do it in the SEC. We're not going to be able to win these games if we're only going to be putting up 17 and 20 points a game. Uh, we're going to have to do more than that, and uh, and they certainly will going forward. Uh, also, we have uh, uh, news. This is just like the Dak Prescott thing all over again that down in Austin that Quinn Ewers may be able to come back sooner than thought. Uh, he did throw the uh, – worked out a little bit before the game – Saturday against UTSA, and he also, as, as I understand, had been practicing a little bit and throwing the ball and doesn't seem to have any problems. And of course, that's with his left 
uh, shoulder that's the problem, the clavicle there. It's not his throwing shoulder. But in any way, you uh, in your follow through and your form, it's always going to affect something like that. And then, frankly, you know, if a guy's going to take a hit, the last thing you want is anything that's going to complicate that problem and make it any worse than it already is. Uh, but those two guys have uh, – uh, now, Quinn Ewers is a big-time talent. Uh, I had not seen him play before he played uh, against Alabama. And in that first quarter when he threw for 134 yards passing – against that Alabama defense, and in which, in, in the course of that, there were a couple of plays that he didn't get because his wide receivers dropped balls. He could have had he could have had 200 yards passing in that first quarter. It was an unbelievable performance, and it didn't wasn't fluky at all. He looked like a big time quarterback. So if if he is able to come back here in the next, I'm I'm going to put it out there that let's say that maybe he could come back for the Oklahoma game, uh, and that's a possibility. Uh, then I then I think Texas really has something going on. We'll see if they are able to maintain that or not. We also have another uh, football game uh, coming up this weekend, uh, the Old Iron Skillet. Uh, and that has been a rivalry that uh, hadn't had much uh, gas, frankly, for, oh, I don't know, 50 years. Uh, but it's uh, – it's, <laughs> 50 years. Yeah, well, it's it, – listen, there was not a lot of excitement about any of those games other than the fact that Gary Patterson was – uh, doing a great job at TCU and SMU was struggling to find somebody to get them on the right track. Uh, but uh, everything has changed now that Sonny Dykes left SMU to go to TCU. That has changed the equation mightily. And I, I can't imagine what that reception is going to be like for Sonny when he goes over there. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he's going to walk down the boulevard before the game. <laughs> which is what he did when he was at SMU. Uh, but that's going to be very interesting to see how that, that game happens over there. Uh, I, I do feel like that uh, SMU uh, really could uh, uh, win that game against TCU. They, it was a disappointing loss to Maryland last week. Uh, they they do have a lot of firepower. Sonny is still trying to put things back together at TCU. I it, I feel like the Horned Frogs are kind of a little bit of an unknown quantity still at this point. So uh, I, I think that game can go either way. That ought to be very entertaining. Who you, who you guys got in these games? Evan? In the in the skillet game? Yeah, the one I was just talking about. I, it was nice that Evan was listening. He was, he was just – When you said skillet, he drifted <laughs> off to uh, skillet cornbread – all sorts of skillet recipes was, that do I not was, include look, SMU or TCU. I was, looking, I was looking up things I could make in my skillet. Um, yeah, I uh, I I feel like TCU wins this game. I just don't know that SMU is quite quite ready to be over the top. They were in the Maryland game on the road, but could not pull that off. Um, there's going to be this is a rare thing. There will probably be some emotion in the stands at Ford Stadium, but I, I, I think that uh, I think TCU is probably the better of the two football teams. All right, David, what do you say? TCU's better, but that's that's one of the great things about college football, right? Is when you get this this motivational aspect of a of a team that that's over the top that you didn't anticipate and and you see it build over the course of a game. Uh, SM, again, it's going to be a, a, a very uh, interesting uh, crowd and uh, the SMU player response in that game. Again, they have an outstanding receiver. Uh, you know, the receivers like leading the nation three games into the season as far as uh, uh, what he's done at this point. So TCU is going to have to contend with some players. But yeah, I, I just think uh, I just think overall the Horn Frogs are better. Well, uh, we'll see here. I, I really do think that SMU pulls this out, um, and 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 you're right about this whole thing. I, I have a niece that's a, a student at SMU, and and her parents are coming in for the weekend, and uh, they ask her, "So are you going into the game?" Because she said, "Oh no, we'll just we'll be out there on the boulevard." Uh, it's like, yeah, right. So this is what has to happen. Those students have to go into the stadium, and they have to get out there and make a lot of noise. And I think that if, if they can't do that for this game, God help them. They can't do it for any game because I know that there's a huge grudge against Sonny for for leaving SMU to go to TCU. We also have, of course, as we just talked about, the A&M 
plays at Arkansas at Jerry World this weekend. I'll be out there for that game. Uh, that game has been a crazy game over the years. Uh, A&M has dominated that series since they moved the game out there. Um, uh, Arkansas has had some real heartbreakers uh, in that uh, in that run along those all those all this time as A&M has dominated. Uh, I really feel like that this year, though, Arkansas will win that game. Sam Pittman has done a great job. The the big fly in the ointment for Arkansas so far, no pass defense. They give up a lot of yards passing. I don't think that A&M is going to be able to take that much advantage of that. I think they will be better because of it, but I don't think they can really take advantage. So I'm going with the Razorbacks in that game. Have you ever opened up like a thing of ointment and found a fly stuck in there? It's unbelievable. It's a, one time I went in there and there was like 12 of them in there. And then I opened up and they all just flew right out. Yeah, I, that would seem to be a problem, Kevin. You might want to call pest control. Um, <laughs> listen, the, the reason I kind of, I just need to apologize. The reason I drifted off there is you I, you were into one of your soliloquies and I just, I, I didn't want to get in the way of it. So um, <laughs> I too am a big Sam Pittman guy and I think that the Razorbacks are, are real um, and Nothing that A&M has done for me has demonstrated that they are on the same page. Um, and, you know, Arkansas seemed to overcome their old coach coming back last week and found a way to win that game after struggling against the Bobby Petrinos for a while. So I, I think they are now fu- fully focused on the things that really matter, the SEC. And uh, I, I think they're um, – I think they're – they're a force to be contended with in the West. I mean, I I don't know that they're that they're better than Alabama. I don't think they're better than Alabama, but you might make the case that Arkansas is the second best team in the SEC West. That might be the case. You know, LSU has just really struggled under Brian Kelly so far, and you would think that that would be. I mean, I mean they they have won a game, but uh, they they still have struggled uh, along the way. Um, Arkansas secondary is going to be a real issue for them going forward. But they won. Uh, I mean, for LSU's credit, they won a. They were not favored at home against Mississippi State. They were an underdog at home against Mississippi State. And no, no, that's terrible. That yeah, that's, that, that is game. terrible for LSU to be an underdog at home to Mississippi State. Yeah. My gosh, that's that's that shows you the the low point of the program. But that, that's where the West that, might be right now, right? That you have Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi State. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that the thing that makes uh, Arkansas dangerous is that, uh, and this is just my issue with college quarterbacks. Uh, you know, R.J. Jefferson is just a load. You know, at two hundred forty-five pounds, he he does he has the, he has developed some touch now, and he he does throw the ball better than he did certainly earlier in his career, and it become a pretty viable passing quarterback. But the issue is, is that if he if he, the play breaks down, and he needs to take off. Well, then. God help you for trying to tackle him. And that's what you got to have in, in college football, unless you're just a dominant quarterback. Uh, and, that, and maybe Quinn Ewers is that, because that's the one thing he can't do, is that he doesn't run very well. Uh, and and it, when you're trying to rely on a pocket passer as a quarterback, that means that everything has to be good with the offensive line. The wide receivers have to be good. Everybody's got to be good to make that kind of thing work. When you've got a quarterback that can can make something out of nothing, uh, then well, maybe we can get by without some of these other things. And, and I just think it makes it a lot easier on you. And that concludes our look at the Iron Skillet game coming up this Saturday <laughs> at SMU. <laughs> yeah, but that's it for the Iron Skillet. We're not talking about them anymore. So uh, anyway, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna we'll talk this- about it. Next week, after after they actually play, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it again. I, I'm just going to throw this out we'll there. Like that, uh, ne- never mind. I'll just leave it. <laughs> I'm not going to go into this. Why can't you do that more often? It was going to be a lot. It was, was really scintillating. Thanks for that, Evan. It was going to be it, it was going to be a Georgia reference. It had something to do with Brock ba- with uh, uh, Brock Bowers, who I think is the best tight end in college football, or maybe the best player in college football right now. And it makes them a scary good team. And I think on ESPN the other day they actually said Georgia is the new Alabama. And I, as much as I want to disagree with them, I might have to agree at this point. Well, I, I can imagine you just wet yourself when you heard them say that. They, they've uh, been impressive. They've been really they, impressive. They are good. I, I, I think Georgia is the best team in, in the college football right now. It's, it, it's been interesting to see how they, 
have overtaken Alabama from that standpoint. It doesn't really make sense to me that it's all of a sudden happened either. Uh, Kirby Smart didn't get to Georgia yesterday. So, but I think sudden, it's been a slow build to this where they are playing like Alabama did. You know, what they're doing on, on both sides of the ball, they're controlling the line completely. Um, it gives the tiny little quarterback plenty of time to make plays, and they've got this tight end who is just ridiculously good. Yeah. And again, this concludes our <laughs> SMU TCU preview of the game this upcoming weekend. Oh, on the SMU. Evans want to talk to us about a Georgia tight end. All right, great. Okay. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning oh my in. Gosh. We'll, we'll talk about other things uh, next week. Maybe we'll have updates about Georgia's tight end. Uh, we'll talk about the, the Nebraska podcast. coaching situation next week. Yeah, that's it. That's because has, have they fired anybody else? Holy, holy oh, I, cow. I, I got to share. They're just I moving that, their way. We're going way too long. I got to tell you oh, oh, Help story. me. So God. I go to get a sandwich in Tampa the other day oh. on Saturday. I go to this little outdoor kind of uh, almost tiki hut place, right, on Saturday afternoon. Go to get a, a fish sandwich. Uh, there's one giant TV in the bar. They're playing Oklahoma, Nebraska. It's the first quarter. I, I go up to the bar manager and I say, is there any way I could get you guys to switch the, the TV to the Georgia-South Carolina game? And she says, no. <laughs> I say, that's what she should have said. Okay, uh, no problem. And then she kind of <laughs> thinks about it for a minute. She says, you know, I'm from Nebraska. They're my team. So, no. I said, okay. And then she looked up at the screen, and it was 21 to 7. And she said, um, yeah, you can have the bar guy switch the TV over. <laughs> yeah, that was enough. Nebraska, the long, long, slow fade in Nebraska from greatness to what it is today. Holy cow. Yeah. Who would have thought it? Tom Osborne, if Tom Osborne were dead, he'd be spinning in his grave. He was at that uh, game on Saturday, and it might have killed him. So Yeah, no kidding. All right, this really is going to do it. This is the end. Yeah, there right. is no more. That's it. Go home. There's nothing else. No mosques. Uh, turn off the podcast. We'll see you. Bye.